Welcome to the Insight to Action Inspirational Insights podcast. My name is Donna Jones. I'm your host, and I'm really delighted today to have Shannon Polson with me. Shannon is just about to release, or is it released now, a book called The Grit Factor. And uh, we're going to have some fun talking about what that's all about. So, Shannon, welcome to the program. What's grit in your book? And I know you've lived it. <laughs> One quick look at your history tells me that. So, so let's find out what that's made of, please. Yeah, sure, Donna, and thank you so much for having me. It's great to join you and great to be with all of your listeners as well. I think this is definitely a time where grit is something that we all need, however you define it. But um, passion and perseverance towards a long-term goal is how Angela Duckworth, who is kind of the premier researcher on grit, has defined it. I have always thought of it, and, uh, and I think right now this, this definition might even apply more, but as a dogged determination in the face of difficult circumstances. And I say that because uh, in terms of its application, because it's hard to know what the long-term goal is right now for a lot of us and for a lot of companies, because the, it's such a dynamic situation, and, uh, and we just simply don't know what even the next month might look like. And so that dogged determination is, is very... Um, very important right now in how we're getting through this, this challenging time. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the beauty of it is it's teaching a lot of people to work with emergence, you know, just to, to not be trying to fix to getting somewhere, but just to allow oneself to work with circumstances that have shown up. And I know given your, like, tell us a bit about what it was like to be the, the if I'm not, not mistaken, the first helicopter Apache helicopter pilot, female Apache. Tell us a bit more about that. Because if there's a place where emergence takes place, it's in the, it's in the cockpit of a helicopter. So <laughs> sure. Yeah. And, and the book that's coming out, uh, we'll talk about some of this as well, but the grit factor and the subtitle is courage, resilience, and leadership in the most male dominated organization in the world is uh, based in part on my own experience and in part on interviews of several dozen other leaders in the vanguard of their fields. They happen to be women, they happen to be military, but, um, but all really people that have gone through this sort of double crucible of doing incredibly challenging things in incredibly challenging environments, uh, also in a community that sometimes didn't accept their being there. So that's really the premise of looking at grit from that perspective. Um, my own experience was as one of the first women, not the first, but uh, one of the first to fly the Apache in the U.S. Army, uh, the first at the 18th Airborne Corps at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And, um, and because I was in that first cohort, then pretty much every assignment there uh, was really the first. And it was um, an incredibly... It was an incredibly rich opportunity, for sure. Um, also very challenging from a number of different perspectives, but I had a chance to lead two different flight platoons and a flight company on three different continents before uh, I ended up transitioning out through an MBA at the Tuck School at Dartmouth and then spending time in the corporate world as well. So, yeah, that's the, that's the quick 30,000-foot overview. <laughs> yeah, while flying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> while flying, yeah, exactly. while flying. We never flew that high in a helicopter, though. <laughs> no, no, I, I can appreciate that. I know we, we rely here on helicopters in Vancouver, Canada. We rely on them when the ceiling is so low that nothing else can fly. So, um, Yes, yeah, which, yes, and sometimes they yeah. shouldn't be either. So, yeah, <laughs> probably true. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Probably true. <laughs> There's a number of things I want to unpack here. One of them is decision-making as a pilot. Sure. Um, and, and not just there, let's, let's not just talk about, you know, cause that, that cuts across gender, but, but you're going to bring a different aspect to that decision-making process as a woman. So that's the first part of it. And then the, the other part of it is the decision-making that you applied when you're working in a male dominated environment. Let's, let's take a look at both if we may. Yeah, sure. And I would say actually the first, the one that is flight specific really 
uh, is gender neutral. And I'm, you know, at the time when I was serving, and this was, I served from 1993 to 2001. And I remember when they were first covering this in the news, uh, the correct answer was, we all bleed green, we're all soldiers, there's a difference between men and women. And, and that, of course, is not true in the holistic sense. It is true in the cockpit, however. And I will say that is something that I don't think that there is a difference between men and women necessarily. That's very just individual. And there are some people that are geared and at the end of the day were responsible for the same emergency procedures, the same limitations, the same flight requirements. And, um, and in that way, I think it, it truly is a gender neutral environment. Um, leadership outside of the cockpit is not gender neutral uh, because, again, everyone brings their own their own um, personality to it for sure. And I would say that there are probably, well, there clearly are some differences between how most men and most women lead with individual differences, of course. And, and that's where I think there, there is, I mean, it's, it's fun to tell the stories in the cockpit and I'm, I love to tell them and I'm happy to share some. Uh, at the end of the day, the real challenges in those eight years were really in the uh, interpersonal realm where there were, there were things to navigate uh, that, that either were personal, but, but generally more cultural. And then that is where there was, um, I really think of, of grit as being particularly important. We need a brief cockpit story. And then I want to dive deeper into the interpersonal stuff, because one of the things that bothers me right now is the fact that we've been limiting our human potential left, right, and center. And it's absolutely. all centered on these kinds of issues, which in the end are absolutely absurd. We've got you know <laughs> big issues to deal with, and we're tinkering around with this stuff that gets in the way. So let's let's that's just my own. I need to slip that in. So let's just let's let's look at a cockpit story and then an interpersonal story, if we may. Yeah, and you know one of the and I think that these will one will will lead into the other. Um, there's a story that I like to tell, and I'm uh, I like to save the punchline until the end, um, in part. But one of them uh, is is after I took my second platoon. I request, I asked for that platoon because our sister battalion, not, not our battalion, but our sister battalion had been selected to deploy to Bosnia. And we were going to, uh, they were going to deploy. And then when I finally took this platoon, I would go with them to deploy in support of the Dayton Peace Accords in support of the stable, NATO Stabilization Force. And so it was 1997, hostilities had just technically ended, but there was still quite a bit of tension. And when we arrived in Bosnia, we first arrived in Germany, put the helicopters back together, flew down through Austria in processed in Hungary, and then came into the country of Bosnia. And if anyone has not been there, it's this absolutely stunning landscape, right? It used to be the playground of Europe and uh, at beautiful rolling forested hills, there's little Turkish castles tucked in along rivers and and yet, as we crossed that border, we knew that there were 9 million landmines that were unmarked and, uh, and unknown, really. And it was such a significant danger that we were told that instead of landing as soon as possible, if we had a major flight emergency, we should land as soon as practicable, which meant to get ourselves to an airfield because there were so many landmines. It was, it was a huge threat. We were flying our missions in Bosnia in teams of two for armed aerial reconnaissance. So we were armed with both 30 millimeter high explosive rounds in the cannon, as well as Hellfire missiles on the wings, because again, the threat was significant enough. And our job was to fly in teams of two, completely different mission than we had back at Fort Bragg, but teams of two to do armed aerial reconnaissance of Serbian heavy weapon storage sites. 
And essentially what that means is the Serbs were required by the Dayton Peace Accords to keep all heavy weapons in certain locations. So we would fly to those sites, do a reconnaissance of those sites with a videotape and then bring them back. And one of the very first missions that we flew Climbed in the helicopter. It's a, a you know very sultry night in uh, the Mediterranean, but because it's been so hot during the day, and then it starts to rapidly cool in that sort of a dry environment, the infrared picture that we would fly under was really clear and crisp. So beautiful, beautiful, easy to navigate along these lines of communication. And as we flew, we knew that we had a hard deck of 300 feet. So the rules of engagement required that we not go below 300 feet, which is very high for a tactical helicopter, by the way. So it made us a little uncomfortable, but that was just the rule. As we approached the weapon storage site to do the reconnaissance, the sound in our helmets changed and we were being tracked by the most lethal anti-aircraft system in the world. And my backseater and I both puckered more than a bit. He said, hey, what do you want me to do, LT? Do you want me to break the hard deck? And I said, don't break the hard deck, stand tight. I made a controlling agency that was responsible for all of the aviation operations in the sector and said, this is Blue Max 5-6. This is our location. We're at 300 feet, and we're being tracked by the most lethal anti-aircraft system in the world. As we were waiting for their reply, the sound in our helmets changed again. And now we had been acquired by that same radar system, which meant that if they fired, we would be killed. The controlling agency came back on the radio and said, if you're nervous, return to base, but don't break the hard deck. And I had to make a decision to your original question in that moment. And that decision had to be made in a few seconds, but it was informed by hours and hours and days of briefings. It was informed by a lot of experience at that point already flying. It was informed by knowing that provocation was more likely than actual engagement and that if we did engage and broke the rules of engagement, then we would be grounded and investigated and potentially sent home. It was also informed by the fact that we hadn't completed the mission. So that decision had to be made in a very short amount of time, but that doesn't mean that it was a seat of the pants decision. And what I did in that moment was to reach over to the volume on that radar tracking device and to turn it down. And we flew the rest of the way, we flew that way the rest of the time that we were in country. Now, I like to say that um, everything turned out okay because being on your podcast was very important. (laughs) Um, But I think there's a lot of, and, and you know, in the cockpit, there's a couple points to make. In the cockpit, there's a lot of very, very, very quick decisions that need to be made, some quicker than that, quite frankly. But they're all informed by experience and by study and by situational awareness, or they should be. And, uh, And so that's the first key point. The second key point is that, And I think this is so important, no matter what times we're living in, but perhaps especially in these times, that we all have so many different inputs coming in, right? And there are times that in order to stay focused on that mission, you have to be willing to turn down the volume. You have to be willing to tune out the noise to be able to stay focused on what it is that needs to be done. So those are the two big lessons, I think, that come from that. And um, we can lead into the next part with that, but I'll, uh, I'll see if anything is prompted in you yeah, no, by that that's story. A, that's a wonderful <laughs> metaphor for it too. Now, how did you actually know that this, was it just by the frequency you knew that that, that was the system tracking you? No, the, the specific device would, would actually name it for us and tell us what signal it was receiving. So we knew exactly. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's move into grit and, and uh, the same kind of question that would apply in the interpersonal dynamics. Yeah. And I think that is, 
And I so agree with you, by the way, that there's so much opportunity, as I guess the way that I'll put it, uh, to to be able to use everybody's capabilities to the maximum potential if we can do this better. And, uh, and, and I would say, you know, in the, my time in the military and, and in the corporate world as well, but especially in uniform, I worked with some of the absolute best people that I will ever have a chance to work with in my life. Absolutely incredible human beings. And I worked with some of the worst. I mean, I think people like to say that the, the military is a cross-section of society and, and there's a bell curve, right? And, um, and so the difference is in the military that the environment is quite insular and, and not connected to the rest of the world. And so there is uh, not just the potential for, but the reality of extremes to the positive and, and to the negative. And I found, I will say, generally speaking, it, it was challenging to work in an environment where the culture seemed to me to demand that I be a certain way. And I could, I could pull it off. I did well in that environment, but it, but it wasn't true to who I was in many cases. And I think that at the end of the day, and one of the things I talk about in both the grit factor, as well as in the accompanying training going for grit, we talk about authenticity in our leadership. And it's very, um, I don't want to say easy because there's nothing easy about it, but we tend to want to, especially as women, we want to adapt to what is required. We want to make people happy. And I think we're, we're sort of wired that way. I mean, all humans are to some degree, but women more than men. And I think that's um, supported by plenty of studies at this stage. Uh, but the reality is we have to be able to lead in a way that is true to ourselves or it's simply not sustainable in the long term. And I think that was one of the hard lessons that I learned coming into a culture that did not have women in those sorts of positions before I arrived. And again, it, that wasn't always uh, malicious at all. It was just the reality of, of, of working to, um, to be successful in a place that was unknown and, and sometimes hostile. And that was a real, that was a challenge for me, for sure, especially at age you know, 23, when I arrived at the battalion as the first woman out of 120 male attack pilots. So that authenticity is tough and, it, and it's important. Now, how did you come to that awareness? Because that's a very nuanced awareness, I think, in terms of recognizing you're in this context, you've got to conform to it. And at the same time, there's another element of you that's pushing against that. So what was, was there a particular event that, that raised that for you? Or was it a dynamic? Or what, how did that surface? It's a great, that's a really good question. And I think what's important about that question is I think that I've arrived once more recently, and I don't think I could have articulated it early on in the same way. I was aware, so when I arrived at Fort Bragg, this was not required at all. But I, I just knew because I had already heard from people like, oh, you know, we, the guys at Fort Bragg don't think you can hang in the field. And I just knew that there was already this culture of like, oh, you're, she's not going to cut it. And so when I arrived, I had my, I had my hair cut very, very short, you know, buzzed up. It had to be feminine according to the regulations, but I had it cut very short. And I think that that is less important except for what it represented, which was this attempt to fit into this culture and not to give anybody any excuse to say anything. The reality is people will find ways to, to say what they want to say. And, and that by itself is not going to, uh, to, to change any minds. I ensured that I excelled. I shot top gun in my platoon, which means I had the highest gunnery score. I would max my PT test. And I think as women, we learn quickly that we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard, which are um, actually the words of one of the women that I, who is a submariner that I interviewed for the grit factor. But, but it's absolutely the case. I would say as I, I left the military after my commitment was up in part because I felt like I was not 
not in touch with and not able to be in touch with, and that may be my own failings, by the way, I don't want to blame that, but um, with some pretty key elements of who I was. And I think that a lot of that was a creative energy that I didn't feel could be expressed there, uh, which is something that I've only recently been able to articulate. But I felt like I had to be, you know, kind of crass. There was a lot of drinking, a lot of swearing. And, and that wasn't really who I was. I could do it. <laughs> and I did it. Uh, but, um, but that wasn't true to who I was. And I don't think that that was the right way for me to bring my gifts in the, uh, to contribute to the world in the way that I was um, meant to contribute in the world. And so, so that felt like it was both going to hurt me and ultimately not be the best way to contribute. And, and so I, I left for other opportunities. Yeah. Excellent answer to that alignment question. Now let's go into the grit part of it. Yeah. 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 For sure. (laughs) (laughs) How does that play out in, in the context of these interpersonal, you know, expectations really? that are partly based on role, partly based on gender? What, what surface there yeah. for you and how does grit apply? Yeah, I think grit was very much a requirement in the actual professional needs of a tactical military environment, for sure. We, we work very long hours. We spend a lot of time in the field and you're in hot, unpleasant environments doing things for extended, and when I say extended periods, I mean weeks at a time or months months at a time living in tents and so so there's some aspect of that but again I really feel like that is the easier part the piece that I I recall and and I'm and this is this is another nuanced thing because there are people that will say well grit isn't the right thing to focus on here you've got to change the system and I I think it's a both and answer to that question Mm -hmm. but I story um that I hadn't actually told before and I almost left out of the grit factor but I had a time when there were two of the pilots in our battalion who called me on a Friday night and they had no reason to call me and we had not had social interactions before and they shouldn't have known where I lived necessarily except that we all had an emergency roster obviously for deployments and they wanted to come by my house and it was late and I said no uh, you know that wasn't acceptable and um and I don't think I said it that way. I just said, no, you know, I'm, I'm going to bed or something like that. And they were very insistent. And I remember it was frightening. Like I almost called the police, but I did lock all the doors. I turned out all the lights and it was, um, it was, it was frightening. And I remember that at the same time, I was not going to make, I was not going to fall on that sword. And I don't know if that was the right answer or not. And th- this was not the worst of the various um, interactions for sure. But 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 the grit in that for me was that I was I I walked in the hangar the next workday and I walked up like nothing had happened and I focused on my work, and I put that aside and and again I think that in 2020 versus 1995 uh, we might say hey you you should have taken this to somebody and and maybe maybe somebody would be right I will say that for many of us I think who are the first in our fields in various environments. Um, there's going to be a lot of reasons for people to say why you can't do something. And I was not going to give anybody the opportunity to use any of that. And so I, I just showed back up at work the next day and I continued to excel. And, um, uh, and I bring that up with knowing that there will be people that will probably think that was the wrong answer. But, uh, but for me, it was, I was, I was there and I understood that I was not just there for myself. I was there for every woman that came after me and that was what I needed to do. You know, and there's a reason why the Me Too movement waited until now. I mean, we're in this stage in the inner, you know, in in time and space where all of yes. these hidden things, these things that could have been used to manipulate particular outcomes are now coming to the surface. They couldn't have come to the surface before because they would have been used to manipulate those outcomes. 
That's so, right. you know, this is just, this is the space we're in right now is to clean up that mess. And, yeah. and uh, at least that's how I see it. Clean, clean up that mess so we can actually get way better at being human in this. So. Well, reality is we really do need at this point, we need everybody's best coming to the table. And if you want everybody's best coming to the table, you've got to have an environment and a culture that supports that. And, uh, and you simply cannot, we simply can't afford in this world anymore, and we couldn't then either, but we certainly can't now afford to be stifling the contribution any of the people that are at the table. And so I think that's really the key here is it's basic human respect, but it's also that we need everybody's contributions. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more on that. Now, in terms of the grit factor and, and what else you've got going on, yeah. You, you know, you're, we're still seeing some issues pop out of certainly American bases on women and oh, um, horrendous. Yeah. Uh, what's your view on that? How do you take that in based on what you've experienced? I have a, um, a, a somewhat black and white view on that. And that is that the military has a unique opportunity with its um, now somewhat dated, but still effective when it needs to be hierarchical structure. And if the military chooses to say that something is intolerable and it's not going to happen, it has a chance to do that. Uh, and that's not it as an entity. That means the military leaders have to do that. And they have not done that. And I, I have no time for that. I have absolutely no time for that. I think it's, the, it's, it's showing a failure of leadership and it's unacceptable. And frankly, it's hurting the military readiness of our forces. Uh, so I have a pretty strong opinion on that. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's about integrity, commitment, and being true to oath. Uh, yes. Working on a and book right taking care of your people, right? I mean, everything that we should do as leaders is taking care of our people. In the military, that has to do with readiness. In a corporate, has to do with your bottom line. But regardless, it's always people first. You, you take care of the people, and they take care of the mission. And if you're allowing increases in this kind of harassment and actually murder of your own soldiers, uh, that's not military readiness. So, no. No, yeah, exactly. Thank you. Corporate. Let's wing over to corporate briefly. How yeah, did yeah. you find that lateral? Because that's a lateral jump, if, if, if I can imagine it. It's just, whoo. How, did, how yeah. did you find that uh, shift? And what, what did you see? Because, I mean, corporate has their structure. They've got a whole lot of mental models of things work and patterns and stuff like that. Yeah, so when you're in corporate, how did you, like, what did you find? This, Sesame Street, what did you find that was the same? What did you find was different? Yeah, I, I think, um, and I transitioned to corporate through a two-year full-time MBA program. And I think that was, for me, very helpful because the military is, um, again, insular. The good parts of that mean that we're consistently, in theory, there, is a, um, there are values, there are, uh, there are ideals that are, um, that are selfless, that are uh, about service. And I think that is the best of the military. And so it took me a while, especially because I got out in August of 2001. And so September 11th happened the next month. And I has, wow. had just started business school. I was struck, you know, I was overwhelmed and underwater in um, accounting and decision science and wondering what I was doing. And, and, and then September 11th happened and I felt so out of place because like unmoored because I'd been in this place where there would have been actions to be taken. I would have felt useful whether or not I was actually useful, but I would have felt useful <laughs> and felt um, part of a solution in some way. And suddenly I was, uh, you know, in a place where I didn't know what I was doing nearly so well and, and have that same sense of purpose. And I think 
that is the biggest shift between the military and corporate is realizing that you have to find your own purpose. And, um, and I actually think there's real beauty in that, by the way, but that took me a while too. Initially, it was, it was difficult because there didn't seem to be those same values. There didn't seem to be that same taking care of people in the same way, the same sort of um, shared purpose. And so I needed to, to create that for myself. And that is an important part, I think, of maturing um, and an important part of, of growing up. But at the same time, at, you know, some of the same principles applied. Taking care of your people is the most important thing. It's why I'm so excited to be part of the leadership world now, is to be able to talk about some of the key takeaways, which really are you take care of your people. They take care of the mission, right? We used to say mission first, people always in the army. And that's the same. If it's done well in the corporate environment and it's done well in the military, it's the same thing. And I have some wonderful stories of really outstanding leadership in that way uh, from my time at Microsoft. So I think that is the biggest piece that is very clear that if it's done well, it's, it's the same. It's the same no matter where you are. Do you mind telling one of those stories from Microsoft? Yeah, no, you know, I've shared this actually a couple times recently, and I'm, I'm very happy to share it. My, my first book is actually not The Grit Factor. That's my, it's my second book. My first book is North of Hope, and it's a memoir of a trip that I took up in Arctic Alaska following a kayak trip that my father and stepmother had taken the year before when they were killed by a grizzly bear. So uh, Grit is certainly a sort of that story as well. It's a much more personal yeah. memoir. Factor is uh, much more of a leadership narrative. But um, but after, when I wrote that book, I um, actually, when everything happened in 2005, when I first got that phone call, I had been working at Microsoft for about six months. And I was working in finance, which is not a good fit for me, <laughs> uh, but it's where I'd interviewed. But the lucky thing, I was, I was part of an amazing team. I had a great boss. I had an amazing larger team, great general manager, great VP. And, uh, and I remember I, when I got that phone call, I was visiting my brother in Portland on the weekend. And I remember calling my boss and I was thinking, I'm going to have to quit because I'm going to have to go back up to Alaska, which is where I'm from. I'm going to have to clear out the house. I'm going to have to sell the house. I mean, it's two people, right? It was the household that is now gone. Um, in addition to all of the personal uh, challenges of, of, losing people that you love. Uh, and so I called my boss and I remember him saying, if you need to take a week and then come back to work because you want to be back at work, that's fine. If you need to take three months, you take three months. He said, you take whatever time you need. It's a blank check. And when you come back, we'll be ready for you. And, and frankly, I don't know that that would have happened anywhere else. Like it wouldn't have happened in the army. <laughs> so, uh, and, um, and there just weren't the, there, there weren't the, the, the things in place that would have had to, to be able to make that happen. And, and I needed to take those three months, by the way. And when I came back, the second part of that story is the general manager and my boss, who's a director of finance. I, I think everybody knew that I was adequate, but not exceptional in finance. And I'm used to being exceptional and I'm used to delivering well in excess of what's expected. And so they had found another position where I had a chance to contribute my gifts and be able to truly excel and, and be able to really make a difference. And so I think both of those components of leadership really are some of the best, honestly, that I've seen in my experience. And I love to hold those up because Mark Regera and Hardy Bualia at Microsoft were just truly outstanding examples of what it means to, to really take care of people and to make sure that everybody has the best opportunity to contribute they possibly can. Talk about safety. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, know, no, it, absolutely. No, I will always, always uh, have incredible gratitude for that. And I will say that drove my experiences following that even at Microsoft with my own teams. And I had already believed in people first, but you know, when I had a chance to go way out of my way for somebody, I went way out of my way for them because that's what we do, right? That's how, that's how the world goes around. Right. <laughs> and that's also how we work the best. That's how we're able to bring our best to work is when we can feel psychologically safe. We can feel physically safe. We can feel like we are uh, honored and our contributions are honored and that there's an opportunity to truly make a difference. That's where we have a chance to, to really make things happen in an organization. I'm going to ask you a personal question. You don't have to answer it. Oh, of course. But knowing you're from Alaska tells me quite a bit uh, because it is kind of the origins of grit in so many respects. I mean, it's an interesting climate shall we say? Yes. <laughs> the conditions are interesting. You know, just the, 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 the personal tra- loss that you experience, it, it defines it in so many ways. How do you yes. think that your experience growing up in Alaska and then your decision to become a, a helicopter pilot, and of course, you know, obviously there's, pl- you know, that continues, but how do those interplay? Where, what did you learn about grit from growing up in Alaska and then becoming, you know, going the direction you went in? Yeah, I, it's a great question because I think there, there certainly is a connection. I, um, I like to, to say on podcasts, especially if they're not Alaska-focused, that, uh, that people may or may not know there's a bumper sticker that people will have on their cars sometimes in Alaska that say Alaska where, where men are men, where women win the Iditarod. <laughs> so I think there's a, <laughs> there's a number of women have won the Iditarod and not just once. And so I, I think that there is, in a way, there's both this example of these really phenomenal women and in very unusual roles, excelling and, and actually not ex- just excelling, but being the best. Uh, and there's also a requirement that everybody uh, be able to contribute because, you know, if you go off the road in the middle of the winter, you number one, better have stuff in the back of your car. So you're prepared. And, um, and number two, everyone's going to pitch in, right? No one's going to sit back and file their fingernails while <laughs> everyone else does the work. So there's very much, I think, a bit of an egalitarian component to living in challenging climates and challenging places. Now, to be completely fair, I grew up outside of Anchorage, which is most of Alaska doesn't consider the, to be truly Alaska because it's, um, it's where half of the population lives. Uh, so I think there's a there's a reality of, of, of general suburban life uh, that was a little bit more normalized maybe than other parts of Alaska can be. But I had a chance when I was 19 to climb Denali. When I was home from college, I was the youngest woman at the time, uh, this was a number of years ago, to, to climb it. I think there are 12-year-olds probably that have climbed it by this point. You know, again, the examples that have been set before me for sure. It was I was far from the, the the first woman to climb Denali. There's people, there's women out there doing incredibly, incredibly challenging things. So I think that environment was a great way to grow up. Um, I also grew up with parents who, um, especially my dad, and I have another story that I can always tell about the soccer field when I was young, but but who really did have have very high expectations and um, and not a lot of time for didn't 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 suffer fools and had no time for whining. And I think that benefited me. I'm pretty sure I did not always appreciate it then. And I'm pretty sure my own children don't always appreciate it now. Uh, but I think that it, it set me up for success and I'm, I will always appreciate that. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. I just want to wrap it up, if I may, with, with yes. the context we're in and yes. what you've experienced and what the book is all about. Yes. What, and you're in, you're in leadership now. You're working in the field of leadership. 
Yes. What, what kind of, of core message do, do people need to know now with respect to leading through a, a pandemic type of crisis, which is, in my way of thinking, a massive opportunity to develop our skills with Absolutely. grit, but beyond that even, you know, sure. to tap into, like get, get rid of all those things that we've been using to suppress our potential. What, yes. what, what message would you like people to, to sit with for the next uh, period of time, if you will? Yeah, I, I think there's there are so many. So I'm gonna I, I will pick I think the starting place and uh, and this is the this is the starting place for the book, the Grit Factor. It is also the starting place for the training going for grit at the up at thegritinstitute.com, uh, which I'm really proud of and which accompanies can accompany the book or stand alone, and it can be self paced so you can do it on your own time uh, video and worksheet supported. Both of those both of them start with the first. There are three phases. The first is to commit. The second is to learn, and the third is to launch. And in that commit phase, because I really believe that you can be a leader no matter what seat you're sitting in, right? I mean, that you can the janitor, the ab. It, it's when you decide to be a leader and when you make a commitment to excellence. I think is when you begin to lead, and when you exercise grit, I think you are leading as well, right? It's a leadership by example. Place that I suggest people start is to look at their own stories, and I think in a time when everything is shifting around us a reconnection to our own stories, which requires us to really take some time to go back and look at core values and key events and what's shaped us, is a starting place in order to connect to core purpose. Now, those are two chapters of the book. Uh, It's two parts of the training. But that core purpose, when we do the work to connect, not just to our purpose, which sometimes is confused with what we're doing in the moment, but actually our core purpose and those things that drive us that are connected to core values, That's the anchor that allows us to maneuver through any kind of a change that might come. And right now, I think a lot of us are feeling pretty tossed about, right? Pretty uncertain. The horizon is unclear. Um, The long-term goals are unclear. Angela Duckworth's definition of working towards a long-term goal is unclear because we don't entirely know what that means. But if we are connected to that core purpose, we're able to negotiate those changing circumstances. And so that's the first work that I think all of us have the opportunity and maybe even the mandate to do right now. And thank you also for sharing where people can reach out and connect with you, which is, I would assume would be at minimum on LinkedIn, but also through the Great Institute. Absolutely. Yes. Both shannonpulson.com and the Institute.com, And that'll connect you to some social as well if you're, if you're inclined that way. Shannon, brilliant. Thank you so much for being on the program. Donna, it's such a pleasure. Great to talk to somebody just across the border. I know. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Thank you. I'm Donna Jones. I provide personal growth for business, mentoring leaders and decision makers who are really ready to adapt their awareness and inner skill set to both meet and match the complexity and speed of change. I also bring intuitive insight into decision making and leadership expansion so that collaboration can benefit from conflicting perspectives and higher trust. By embedding a healthy balance between certainty and uncertainty, growth at a personal and organizational level has a serious chance. Contact me through LinkedIn or through www.fromInsight2Action.com. And it's Donna, D-A-W-N-A.